0: welcome to the stories or soul food podcast with your hosts brian cole and best-selling author nd wilson this audio is brought to you by cannonball books and great homeschool conventions You all just missed the best line I've ever said, because it wasn't recorded. (laughs) (laughs) It was just the welcome, don't worry. (laughs) Welcome to Stories or Soul Food. Welcome. The most hideous episode to date. Yes, the hideousest. That's a good sound. Hideousest. Uh, The most hideous of all of our episodes to date. Today, we discuss that hideous strength. Our episodes about the space trilogy have not dropped yet. No, they haven't. We are dropping so next we're week. we're ahead. We're ahead of schedule. So, right now, we are doing our final episode on C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy without having gotten any feedback from listeners. So right. So, that's kind of fun. But next week. It means we can't answer questions yet and we can't, uh, you know, know where we hurt feelings or whatever. Or when you said things about how Paralander's not a good novel. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. Oh, feels weird talking to the future? Past? <laughs> We're talking um, to the past from the future. We're talking to the future from the past. Yes. Yeah, that's it.
1: I find it fun to begin with the negative reviews on Amazon to see what the... <laughs> <laughs> this may be an exercise in dumpster diving, but I think it's also fun because occasionally there's a Yelp that shows that C.S. Lewis did exactly what he was doing. One of my favorite negative Amazon reviews was someone who's complaining about his view of women's roles. Okay. Except she spelled it R O L L S, women's roles. <laughs> and uh, mm. and uh, he did
0: it, not have a high view of female baking.
1: Yeah. Anyways, and uh, she figured that that C. S. Lewis was being far too patronizing with Jane, and accused accused the name of Jane as being. I thought that would be a good intro because Jane is the new main character of this is novel. Is she? Yes, the protagonist. I should say, perhaps not the most okay. important character.
0: Yeah, I, I would say she is a protagonist. Mark and Jane, right? She, yeah, she's not uh, She's not the protagonist, but she is a protagonist, and she's a great one. She's a great protagonist. I thought for
1: all the condescension, this woman missed the
0: fact that C.S.
1: Lewis put his own career as Jane's career, like the, yeah. the English professor. Yep. J- Jane is the one who's doing what no, he C.S. Relates,
0: Lewis. He actually relates to both Mark and Jane very, very closely. I mean, they're autobiographical. In nature for both of them you know their their particular drives their drives their flaws you know the the ache the hole inside them both is something that he knew personally and was very very familiar with can you describe that a bit about jane yeah so jane is looking to matter yeah you know she's looking to matter she just wants to matter (laughs) you know like that's whatever i'm doing why am i so despondent why am i so empty why can't i matter and she she happens to blame the not mattering on and her her malaise on her husband mark you know and the and kind of the, really more the uh, you know the relationship of marriage itself she's kind of blaming it on marriage right. know, she got married and now she's given up her dissertation on done you know she's she's just feeling like the things that used to make her think she mattered or the things that she used to respect about herself no longer exist and that is something that's pretty common actually in high achieving people with any change of life when they've gotten to a place where they have a lot of uh they have a lot of self-respect rightly or wrongly and then things change you know life changes and and they have to reassess their identity and what makes them actually matter so does she matter as mark studdick's wife and she decides no she does not <laughs> that's she doesn't matter yeah. anymore. And she doesn't matter. It, it's matters. that simple that she chose to say, no, I don't matter. I don't matter anymore. You know? Right. And for Mark, Mark is trying to matter as well. But he's trying to matter climbing the greasy pole of inclusion and promotion at a college and in the college faculty. And non-stop committee meetings. Yeah. And just trying to penetrate the inner circle. Like, can he get into the, you know, the the ring of rings? Can he get into the bullseye of Decision makers and the people who matter, the influencers. So, he's so again, tr- the same thing. He's right? trying to matter. He's trying to matter, and where they get that mattering is in Jane's case in self perception uh, and how she views her role and what she tries to fulfill. And in Mark's case, is the perception of his peers. Uh, mm, right. You know, it's like he's and he doesn't care if he views if he doesn't care if he knows he's a fraud. So Jane cares about that. Right. She so, wants to know in her heart. Yeah. She wants when to Jane know is that alone. Not a fraud. When Jane's yeah. there by herself, she's committed to wanting to not be a fraud, wanting to matter. Um, and that's, of course, she's deceived in how she's going about assessing that. But that's still her commitment is honest. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. She has an honest commitment to wanting to matter. And Mark has a dishonest
1: commitment to wanting to matter. Right. How many times is Mark described as not saying something because he's afraid of how it will sound? Right.
0: right. And so Mark is deciding to not matter in order to be welcomed in and not causing friction not he's just being kosher he's being as kosher as he possibly can for whatever is the in think at his college from the decision maker so he can kind of you know sidle all into the inner ring and he wants to go further and further and further into the inner ring and he wants to do so while knowing he's a fraud right he, he doesn't care if he knows he's a fraud he wants above all else, other people to not think he is. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's a duality there that's really, I, I find interesting. Yeah. And I think Lewis, in his own reflections in God in the Dock, he writes, I think it's God in the Dock, where he writes an, an essay on the inner ring, and that that drive, that des- that just hunger, that hunger to get further and further inside the club, to be absorbed all the way into the very, very heart of a thing. Then it's really funny because Jane is welcomed right into the most inner ring of all time. <laughs> yeah, Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, She's so Jane is welcomed into Logris, which and she knows the Pendragon <laughs> and like she's in the company at St. Anne. She's welcomed into like the most inner ring you could possibly get into. The coolest English story that in it England. Is. Yeah, yeah that she she just slides right in. And she slides right in there by by visiting the therapist, you know, like where she's concerned about, you know, her self-worth and who she is and what she's squandering. And Mrs. Dimble, this very ma- maternal, glorious character, you know, hooks Jane up with this therapist who's very hard and brittle and like puritanical, but turns out to be the gatekeeper for this extremely warm, joyous, jovial company. And so Jane's welcomed into the most incredible inner ring of all time. Yeah, the company Mark is Ames. kept away from it. And it's a weird, it's a weird thing that Lewis does there because Mark, for Mark, the giant temptation is the inner ring. Mark would have been gleeful. Like he would have been overwhelmed and gleeful to be welcomed into a secret society, an inner ring. He
1: might even have dropped nice right away if that Yeah, been, exactly. It yeah. just
0: would he would have been just overjoyed to for, be there for the wrong reason for the wrong reason. Yeah. So he had to go. Mark has this long journey of getting further and further in and discovering the fraud of all of it, you know, that those people that he's been receiving his worth from, his value from, are all fraudulent, it's all hypocritical, it's immoral, it goes from like amoral to immoral, and then at the very, very heart of it, it's just demonic, <laughs> like, yeah. like at the very heart of All the inner rings, he finds Satan. (laughs) You know, it's like he's like, (laughs) Uh you know, (laughs) it's like he's he gets all the way there, and he, you know, that that's his trip. And then there's the recoil. So he's recalibrated completely by the time he's welcomed into the true inner ring, which Jane has already just been in the whole time. So Jane is in there immediately and has to process self worth, self perception, and hierarchy, and she's learning all of these lessons. Yeah, you know. Because ba-
1: basically, Jane has decided that Mark doesn't matter, right? Right. She says the the certain hierarchy that I've put myself in by being married to this man. Yep. I have taken myself out of the game.
0: Yep. She's taking herself out. Of, she thinks that the institution of marriage is right. Like she, her doubts are there. So she blames Mark, but Mark's oppression of her is not actual oppression, and she doesn't think he's oppressive. It's just he's boring, and. And he's obsessed with things that don't matter. Yeah, and and he's boring. And there's a hierarchical relationship that she thinks is just like destroyed who she is, her identity. But there's these fantastic lessons, these little throwaways that Lewis throws in there for Jane and her arc, like putting on these amazing gowns. She's in the attic of this house, and they're pulling out these historical gowns, these period gowns, these incredibly, you know, for for the for the ancient kings and queens for this event. And she's trying on gowns. I think it's Mrs. Dimble who's there with her. It might be. I, I think, think so. I think it's, it might be, it's Mrs. Dimble. Yeah. Maybe somebody can correct us eventually or I'll go double check. But she's in the attics of this, of St. Anne's, this gorgeous house, trying on these amazing gowns. And she's looking around and realizes there are no mirrors. And hmm. she has to gauge whether or not something suits her or is beautiful based on just purely the perception of others. Mm. And so she has to put something on and, and the others tell her like, no, this one. And they, they help her pick and say, this is for you. And this beautifies you, but your beauty exists for others, not for yourself. Like Mm. we are helping you like become beautiful for this event so that we can take pleasure in your beauty. And you can't, you don't even get to see yourself. No Instagram filter. And So it's the exact opposite of Mark's problem. Mark's obsessed with the perception of others, and Jane is hung up on her own reflection. Huh. And so he does this the two sides of self-worth, you know, people who are in this, you know, this selfish trap and people who are in this peer, you know, peer pressure trap. Girardian, we uh, might yeah. call it. Yeah. Mimetic. So yeah. Mark is entirely mimetic and Jane is entirely introspective and selfish. And so you have those two characters go on separate journeys that are tailored for them and their own insecurities and their own issues, and then arrive together at St. Anne's when they finally both have matured sufficiently. I think you've
1: just addressed the big complaint that most of the negative reviews have, which is that those first eight chapters don't have the same instant, I'm in a different world, that the first two books of the space trilogy had. And so people reading this are saying, well, where's the aliens in in chapters one through eight? Right. And- it just is not understanding the extreme insight that Lewis has when it
0: comes to the two new characters that he's introduced into this. Scene. Yeah, but that's also just a fundamental misunderstanding of his project, which is I'm going to write a story on Mars. I'm going to write a story on Venus. And I'm going to write a story on Earth because Earth is also a planet. Yeah, <laughs> like it's right. It's also a planet, and we are the aliens. Yeah, on this planet, like we yeah. are, we are the ones who live here, and so. To complain that there aren't aliens. It's like, well, there are. We're You're just comfortable with them. <laughs> yeah, just we happen to be them. So he's ro- he's roving, you know, roaming through the solar system, writing about the inhabitants of different planets and arrives on ours. And okay, you know, the, right. from the first book to the last book, the foreshadowing's there out of the silent planet. And then that hideous strength ends with into the silent planet. You know, it's like we're in the silent planet. The story happens in the silent planet and uh, Malacandra and whatever her name is, Paralandra. Yeah. uh, Descend. Right. Into the silent planet. And the the silent planet is made silent no more. Yep. And so it's, if they look at that and they say, why why aren't we on Jupiter? It's like, well, that's not the project. You might complain about it, but the project itself was to go out from Earth and come back to Earth with a new perception. So. They're yeah. just missing it. If, right. they're, if they're complaining that there's no aliens or there's no sci-fi, fast enough.
1: It's quite a bit different than the first two, though, right? Yeah. Writing writing style-wise, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's much more of that character
0: sketch. Where it's, he, well, it's much better. Yeah, I mean, it's just totally. By every significantly metric. Significantly <laughs> better. Um, and that's not to slight the earlier ones. It's just to say this is phenomenal. This is a novel. This is what literature is supposed to do. Yeah. And I would, I have said many times that that hideous strength is my favorite novel in the English language. And that is in fact the case. Yeah. I mean, it just, it remains there. It sits there. It has not been dethroned and I've read some great stuff and nope, none of it touches what Lewis accomplished in this book.
1: Should we talk about title? It seems like the title's uh, significant there. It comes from that poem from the 1600s, right? Where it's describing Lewis title. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> A grab from his his career, right? From his academic career. Yeah. At, you know, he snatched, uh, I can't remember the exact line, but describing the Tower of Babel and yeah. describes that hideous strength of spelled in very old 15th century English
0: or 1500s English. I don't remember. My, my decades, centuries are off. 16th century, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. That hideous strength around the story of Babel. Right. And most people don't even notice that this is the story of Babel. Until they get to the chapter called like the Tower of Babel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like or just Babel. I don't remember what he calls the chapter. Right. Where all of a sudden everybody's stuck being curse of Babel, able <laughs> to, yeah, to understand of, each other. <laughs> the curse of Babel actually is used in the story. And people say, Oh wow, a Babel reference. Yeah. Like, oh, that's been that's been keyed up from the beginning. What's what is
1: what is Babel in the hideous strength? That's the scientism uh, we've been talking about. Yeah, right? the Nice.
0: So the N I C E the, the quest for domination and – well, really, the quest the quest for domination and immortality pursued through uh, materialism, scientism. Yeah, straight out of Genesis, we'll make a name for ourselves on the earth. Yeah, and it starts with hyper-materialism and power, 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 and descends into devil worship. Right. And sheer devilry. Yeah. So, when men go on a quest for immortality apart from the blood of Christ, like apart from the resurrection – they inevitably will partner up with devils. You can't, like, if you're a material being with a soul and you're trying to find out how to permanently bond your soul to your flesh, how to permanently maintain consciousness here and bypass death, in the end, you're always going to talk to a demon. <laughs> like, it just, right, you're going to go up and up and up. You're going to go through all the, you know, the researchers and the genetic modifications and everything else. And you might try it, you try, try all of it materialistically but you're only a, you're de- dealing with one half of you the material flesh, your body so you cannot come up with a hack for keeping the soul in the body without addressing the spiritual side and a spiritual hack, you have to come up with a physical hack and a spiritual hack and so there's this quest for physical hacks that will in the end reach you you know get you to a place where you say so is Ashtoreth around could I talk to her, how about Dagon or Baal, right. you know it's like this is I need a demon. Card-carrying
1: Satanists will tell you that Satanism is about the worship of self, uh, or yeah.
0: and but I I think that's a lie. Right, and, they're and fake f- ones. They're, th- those are just, yeah. Those are just the Church of Satan is a joke and right invented to shock suburban mothers in the U.S. at least. Anton Levay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's real devil worship. Real devilry is a lot more terrifying than anything they do. Right,
1: and then I think one other you know i thought that the head transplant stuff was lewis doing sci-fi but of course that's actually i found out extremely real um being that since well i this may tell you more about me than you want to know but i'm reading <laughs> a book called stiff about cadavers yep. right by mary roach and she has a whole chapter on head transplants which we have been trying to do and we i say the human race the members of the silent planet have been trying to do head yep. head transplants at least from the time of the french revolution where all these french scientists had a whole bunch of available heads had a bunch of heads tried to get it working by uh they recognized that a human consciousness lasts for a good 10 or 12 seconds after beheading and then of course going all the way through up until the 70s we had a uh, well he's a catholic a catholic doctor swapped heads on monkeys and kept them alive for a certain amount of time and he says for sure i could do it on humans They're ready for me to do it in the Dominican Republic. They're ready. They'll pay. There's just not enough money in it right now and too much liability.
0: And then he says the Pope disapproves. Yeah. I don't know why he thinks there'd be any liability involved, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but more than that, you can have your head frozen. So we've had that for a long time where you can, you can, if you, when you die, you can pay a lot of money. Your family can pay a lot of money to have you cryogenically frozen or just your head. Oh, right. Cause that prevents the tissue loss that leads to brain death. and so. Yeah, it just kind of like, well, we'll save your head. You might be dead. We'll cut off your body and save your head for transplant later when we figured out how to do it. So we'll bring you back. But we will pay now. <laughs> yeah, pay now. Pay your half a million dollars now, and then we'll stick you in a chamber of liquid nitrogen. In a, And actually, I watched, I watched one of these things happen. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, it, I wasn't present, but uh, I watched footage of it. And at least in this particular incident, I was really astounded at how they just stuck, were sticking people in sleeping bags and duct taping it heavily. And like, it was like the inner liner and you end up like, that's our embalmment. <laughs> <Like> at least <laughs> the Egyptians like knew there should be some more ritual to it, some liturgy. Yeah. Like we're going to put your organs in a jar and then we're going to stick you over here and eventually you'll come back <laughs> like, right. when we figured it out. But in this case, yeah, we have a lot, a lot of like REI sleeping bags getting, <laughs> getting dipped in liquid nitrogen. So it's, it's, it's comical. It's God telling that hideous strength story. So we, uh, we've been obsessed with immortality. And as a result of that obsession with immortality, head transplants for some time, because we thought, well, if the body is sick, if death is entering below the neck, then we can just stick you, we can kill some lower class person and swap you on. Right. Right. That's been a fantasy for a long, long time. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, it's still, it's still present like it still is. Elon Musk right now is very, very interested not in relocating the head, but in relocating consciousness. You know, he wants to be able to isolate and remove human consciousness and place it in a synthetic life form. So his, his goal is to send synthetic life forms inhabited by human consciousness into space. It belongs in this exact trilogy. Like, okay, I'm yeah. going to kill you, have you haunt a machine, and then launch you into space. I mean, that's kind of can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a bummer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how horrible would that be the worst afterlife ever and this is what we call hell <laughs> <laughs> no kidding um anyway as far as, I mean as far as that idea of strength goes what Lewis is doing with head transplants and immortality and the quest for immortality and revealing that pursuing immortality through scientism results in demonism it will always always cross paths with the occult and end up
1: absorbed by it are people overt about that right now? Do you think, or do you think they're being co-opted, like like the way that say, well, I mean, at the end of that, hideous I, th- strength- I think so.
0: Actually, I think there's there's some overtness to it. For okay. Sure, there are people who are aware of quote unquote powers, you know, mm. influences, things like that. They might not use the same terminology, but absolutely, and oh, yeah, we call good. a whole bunch of them UFOs. You know, every time we see something we can't identify, it's like, well, we assume it's biological, but You know, we have a ton of footage and things that have been declassified (laughs) thanks to our previous president, (laughs) you know, people seeing things flying way too fast for the laws of physics, you know, Navy pilots with footage of things going way beyond friction, like what friction would allow. We know we're kind of witnessing uh, the material effects of immaterial activity. Anyway, it's, there's a lot there and people are definitely deep diving. The richer they are, the stranger the deep dive is. Because they have billions of dollars. What else do they have to do except for try to become immortal? Either through reshaping the world or right. um, actually hanging out for as long as possible. <laughs> so anyway, that's a bit of a distraction, but not really. I mean, that's what yeah, Lewis just, is I addressing.
1: Mean, it's just Lewis is not writing that a- that aspect of the scientism he's describing is not fictional. Right. The people he's describing, the villains that terrify you.
0: Uh, yeah, from- the grossness of the villainy is with us today right you know it's absolutely with us today and you think about the the baby part sales yeah you know, that were exposed you think about the things we've seen recently that just goes on right you know it just goes on I had a, a ufc fighter tell me that a lot of his friends were all about uh you know embryonic stem cell injections yikes and you know, if you think about that, like, what is, what is that? It's like, well, if you just shift genre slightly, you realize this is what we call necromancy. Like there's names it's for this. power from dead things. Yeah. It's like, okay. From so, bodies. Yeah. We're going to take how we're going to murder a bunch of babies. We're going to blend them into a paste and we're going to inject it into a fighter to make him strong. Like that's, that's hundred percent necromancy. Now, the thing that was bizarre that he told me, he was not a believer, but he, he told me, I think he's probably a Jack Catholic from way back that everybody that he knew who was injected with embryonic stem cells in different injuries, like, you know, if you had a, like a jacked up shoulder or something and you'd be trying to supplement your recovery with something like this. He said, everybody he knew who did it was filled with tumors. (sighs) It's like, they all just sprouted tumors, tons of tumors. And his words were, it's like, it's cursed. (laughs) He said that. (laughs) (laughs) He said that. Yeah. like... Oh, really? <laughs> like it's like God's cheating, basically. So and he said, then of course, if you use adult stem cells, he's like scientifically, medically, it they shouldn't be as effective. It should not work as well. But if you do use adult stem cells harvested minus the murder, you don't have the tumor effect. <laughs> I and, shouldn't be laughing. Right, That's not really you know, it's funny, like, but no, but it, it is. It is on a cosmic level. It's like there is a God and he will judge you. And you are gonna like you will reap a uh, harvest
1: yeah, tumors yeah. are tumors so been- the wind
0: reap the whirlwind. You know, it's like this is just the way God functions. So he was telling me this, like,, Ooh, you know, and as an unbeliever, he was telling me, like, oh, that's I would never. that's just gross. And plus, it's like cursed, man. <laughs> you know, like, and told me the stories, and was like, oh, and these, of course, are fighters who are flying to Panama or Germany or other places where they can do this legally. You can't do it in the u s. So and then having all the downstream curse consequences. So yeah. anyway, we live in this world, and Lewis did too, and th- that hideous strength is not far-fetched. Like, it just really is not. Yeah. So. Down to the bear. Down to the bear. It's uh maybe the farthest-fetched part is Merlin, but that's also my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> so the use of Merlin, and actually there's Tolkien, we should say. Would have been furious, hated, right? Hated this book. He said it ruined the trilogy, this Okay,
1: so he would have been on Amazon with the one-star review.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Classic (laughs) Tolkien. Um, There's a thematic inconsistency. Yeah, his objection was the kind of myth mixing, the mythology that Lewis felt free to use. And Lewis's use of Arthurian mythology in the third book, when Arthurian mythology had not been present in the first two, he found to be a bridge too far. Uh, I found it to be just right. It's perfect
1: is the bridge so, to the place Nate wanted to go. Yeah, it
0: absolutely is. So it's what was missing from the first two. This one is fantastic. So he takes Lewis takes the space travel, the medieval cosmology, and if Tolkien had been paying really close attention, he would realize that the medieval cosmology actually does like open the door to pulling in medieval, the medieval world, you know, the the really early pre-medieval that the so-called dark ages that were actually quite bright. You know, pull that in. The story it makes perfect sense that lewis using the mythology of from the medievals of the planets and the music of the spheres and everything else that he would pull in old other old stories from back then as well so the mythology around merlin and merlin's birth and specifically the sin of genesis six and the sin of the old testament that it eventually like that grasping for the heavens that got us to the tower of babel again so Merlin comes in under this Nephilimic mythology, right? And he, yeah, Merlin, deny it. You know, they said I was a son of a devil, but they lied. Yeah. Um, but he he pulls that in, pulls him in, and uh, and uses him brilliantly. I mean, brilliantly. His his knowledge historically and anthropologically, sociologically of an old Britain. You know what an old right. what an old British character would actually be like.
1: Yeah. Totally, I learned a, I learned fantastic. some good Latin curses from Merlin. I think uh, Mastigia is a good one. someone basically like a wearer out of whips?
0: Someone is yeah. just like the. <laughs> You're so stupid. Yeah, <laughs> we wear out the whips on you, right? Yeah, it's so what he does, and Tolkien hated it because of Charles Williams' influence. Charles Charles Williams has big on Arthur Legris, etc. Uh, Lewis said, "Ooh, goody!" and found something shiny and wove it in, uh, and so we have a space piece. The landing on earth you know it's like the, the story is actually all descending here the theme of babel the theme of scientism leading to devilry uh, then the the individual human character studies around self-worth and also the pursuit of the inner ring like where where that right. comes from which ultimately results in a meditation on marriage right you know hierarchy and marriage and, and, and so
1: the on. setup is that our the silent planet has our own broken versions of all the big. Of the beautiful things. Of the beautiful things. So we have our own
0: version of Malachandra and Paralandra, right? But ours are, well, twisted. Yeah. Mars Mars and Venus are uh, fallen angels. Yeah. You know, that they're like the ambassadors. So if you think of like uh, in in Lewis's mythology, you have Venus, the goddess Venus is unfallen. She is a faithful angel basically. But she's the capital V Venus who rules the planet Venus. She has an ambassadress yeah, <laughs> on Earth, a lower, a small V Venus, who is uh, her servant, who fell who, with with our with angel. So Satan, yeah, who rebelled against God, and so the Venus worshipped by the ancients was the cheap fallen ambassador from that planet, but there is an angel from that planet who was unfallen and came here in part to set that right. Yeah. You know, to, to help address that. So, And that's what happens at the end, right? Because yeah. the end is weird. Spoiler. The end's pretty yeah. weird, I We're think. We're going to spoil it. Yeah. Hey, you we? all should have already read this. It was assigned, right? And
1: this won't ruin it for him either. No, it shouldn't. Because I think you, when you head into that, I remember as a high school kid reading it for the first time, I thought, what's happening? I was, yeah. I was tracking for plot, not yep. for theme. Yep. And that was
0: very surprising. So, Ransom calls in his allies that he's made from other planets. Yeah. And they descend to help put an end. To the NICD you know, to help put an end to this babble, this particular babble attempt. So they arrive, the unfallen Venus, the unfallen Mars show up visiting from their own spheres to uh, do battle. Yeah. You know, like that's, yeah. The,
1: and how, yeah. How
0: cool is that? I yeah. They show up to do battle on behalf of the inner ring that Jane has found and welcomed Mark into <laughs> yeah, like this is. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the big finale and it all ends up with a bear doing what a bear should do. <laughs> Crushing Mr. Heads. Mr. Bultitude, my favorite character yeah. of the book. Quite fantastic. So, I mean, as far as the stories go, Lewis is weaving a lot together, but in this one, even far more than the other two, he's weaving in himself in his own, his own journey, his own sanctification, his own quest that led him to salvation ultimately, and his own discovery of the, the beauty of hierarchy, the beauty of submission and obedience to yeah. a higher authority. I think one of the strengths of Lewis again is that you have such a
1: cosmic story that helps us feel that the everyday life is actually important. That's the takeaway, yeah. right? Because it ends with Jane and Mark, you know, the yep. the, the two of them as Marriage. part
0: yep. as part of something. As part of the dance of the spheres, as part of the music of the entire universe. Yeah.
1: What an honor for tiny yep. tiny little, alien, tiny, little people. T- tiny little aliens on the, on the planet. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and you but he also does such a great job of these little touches, like Ivy Mags is a character, a wife, a faithful wife of a struggling guy. You know, he was in doing prison time. Oh yeah, um, and she's helping out in this inner in this inner ring, this inner circle, this company at St. Anne's. But her relationship to the bear and her relationship to this other great character of McPhee. You know, this the angry, like honest intellectual, but who's not a believer. And mm. you know, McPhee kind of represents another aspect of Lewis's life than his own and his own journey. Um, and was very much based off a particular person. <laughs> yeah. But the way Ivy Maggs relates to the crotchety Scotsman and to the bear, he's showing you something he finds to be as beautiful as a thundercloud and as like, it's harmonic with it. You know, it's like that mm. this, these domestic relationships and domestic beauty, like all the way down to the grass and all the way up to the heavens is when it's all in harmony, is all part of one whole and one whole beautiful dance. So he's, he shows that and there's these little castaway moments of ivy relating to the bear and other things like that and that's not accidental it's not like well, let's throw in some physical comedy it's you know it's profound it's a deep comment you see the same thing with ransom and his relationship to the mice so, okay i vaguely so, remember that but not very well so ransom's eating lunch you know he's, he's eating lunch and jane is there and she's very overwhelmed by this guy like moses coming off of sinai he's met with god basically so and he's glowing. It's like, yeah, he's this kind of overwhelming presence now. And she's she's being tempted to fall for him. And he's he knows this immediately and rebukes her, <laughs> which is whoa. <laughs> but she doesn't say anything, he just he sees it. But he's he eats very simple fare, and there's bread crumbs, not bread and wine. Bread crumbs fall because he's eating bread, and then he whistles, and the mice come out. And even the mice are obedient. And the mice come running out, they gather up all his crumbs and then disappear and just run away. It's this little touch and she did, and there's a fantastic description of a mouse making its way through like a shag carpet through like a really thick carpet. <laughs> so like just hunting across the floor. and she's kind of all of her normal rev- like just aversion, all, all of her normal how, how grossed out she'd be by a mouse, by the rodent, by this this ancient nemesis of domesticity. <laughs> She, it just kind of vanishes as she watches as she, as she watches it in harmony, as she watches it submissive and obedient and going back to its place. you know yeah, instead of raiding your pantry and leaving its spore, it's yeah. showing up and cleaning up and running away. yeah know, and vanishing in inob- and c- coming when called and leaving when told. and it's a very different thing. and he does it's a funny little scene, and I love it a lot, but it is one of those moments when Lewis is harmonizing the whole thing. Yeah. We're going from rodents, we're going from bears, we're going from bees, we're going from flowers down to the plants, all the way up to the, yeah. the planets and beyond. That's great. I wonder if we should end there. We should. We should because it's awesome. Yeah, uh, Merlin is actually my favorite character, Mr. Bultitude's number two, but I honestly, I've read this book more times than I can count. And yeah. it's, it shows me something every single time.
1: We didn't get to talk about Fairy Hardcastle. Speaking oh, of the least, least oh, favorite gosh. characters,
0: yeah. But, speaking uh, of officers who remind me of officers I've dealt with, in my. Life. Me too. <laughs> uh, Alrighty. Yeah. Until okay. next time, when yep. we talk about something else, go read that hideous strength or yeah. listen to it audiobook style. Next time, Andy Wilson. I think we're starting on our Odyssey of Andy's. Okay. Andy's works, but we need whatever we need Brian questions. says. Whatever Brian says. Send in any questions you have about my particular stuff, things I could actually answer. And read that of your strength. Yeah. Read it, read it, read it. Read it to harmonize all together.
1: That's the sign of yep. great literature. If Thank it all speaks to itself. Perfect. All righty. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. I wanted to recommend a book from the Canon Press shelf called What I Learned in Narnia by Douglas Wilson. Alan Jacobs, author of The Narnian, said this about the book. What I Learned in Narnia is a rich response to stories that hold a world of wisdom. Douglas Wilson draws forth that wisdom and shows it to us all. You can find this book at canonpress.com as well as on the Canon app.